Well, how many of you have ever been asked to do something you thought was completely ridiculous and impossible by a boss? Let me see show of hands in the room, okay? If you're on my staff, you need to put your hands down right now. Okay, um, how many of you by a parent, whether you're a child or adult, you had a parent ask you to do something or is known for asking just crazy, impossible things? Okay, so here's the thing. Um, I think I'm pretty sane, normal, rational person, but my kids don't, okay? Uh, I asked my son Levi to, uh, you know, clean. He was doing some chores and, and he had missed the spot behind the dryer and between the dryer and the wall. And I said, hey, Levi, there's a spot here. There's all the stuff that's come out of the dryer in the back. You know, you need to vacuum that up. And he's like, what? I mean, what? And I'm like, I, what do you mean what? Like, it's perfectly normal normal thing to ask for you to clean the stuff that comes out of the jar, to, to vacuum that up. Well, apparently this was some sort of impossible, demanding, like just crazy request, okay? Because he began to tell our family and some of our friends uh, a few weeks ago about this request and everyone's laughing at me like I'm some crazy person for wanting the stuff that comes out of the dryer between the dryer and the wall vacuumed up. And I'm like, there's nothing crazy about that, okay? It's a perfectly normal, same question and, and request, but they were all laughing at me like I'm some sort of clean freak. I'm like, no, I'm just a normal person, okay? Just, this is just normal, okay? But we've all been there before. We've all been asked to do something we thought was crazy or it was impossible. It was incredibly demanding. And, and that's what happens in Daniel chapter two. Daniel and his friends are faced with an impossible task. And this morning, you're going to see what God has done and what God is always doing in impossible situations. So if you got your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Now, in this series, I've learned I just do not have time to recap and to bring you up to speed on where we're at. Uh, we are running late this morning because I tried to do a little bit too much of that in the first service and I corrected my error in the second service. So I will just say, if you are behind or if you haven't been here, you will need to catch up by watching the messages on our app, okay? Um, Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. Babylon is a nation led by King Nebuchadnezzar who has taken uh, the nation of Judah into captivity. They will destroy Jerusalem, the temple, and then take those captives into Babylon. And Daniel and his friends are some of those in the royal family, the extended royal family who have, taken, who have been taken into captivity. And so we read now about Daniel and his friend's experience in the nation of Babylon. But, but here's what we've said. Uh, Babylon is not just a nation. It's a theme. It's an idea in the scripture for all that is opposed to God. And so we've said, it's not just Babylon. This is about the spirit of Babylon and what the spirit of Babylon is always doing. What Satan is using in the spirit of Babylon and always is doing and using through the spirit of of Babylon to help us and to make us Babylonians. And so we said last week, uh, faithfulness to God is being in Babylon, but not of Babylon. And we're going to continue now in Daniel chapter two. Now, remember, we're doing this series uh, in order in hopes our prayer is to not pull you to the left or right. You've got enough things doing that in society right now, pulling you to the left and pulling you to the right. The goal in this series is to help you get some perspective. It's to lift you up 
so that you can see things maybe that are unseen. You can see some things behind the curtain that we don't typically see with our eyes. We have to have God's eyes. We have to have the Holy Spirit help us to see the things that God is doing, the Spirit of God wants to do in us, and the Spirit of Babylon wants to do to us. And so hopefully through this series, we're going to learn how to not just survive, but to be faithful in Babylon, to be faithful in your Babylon. We're doing this series going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because I also believe that in the end days, in the last times, uh, which I believe that we are in, uh, that people, the scripture says, will turn to teachers who tell them just whatever they want to hear, just to encourage them. And so we're saying uh, we're going to start doing a lot more series where we go verse by verse through books just to combat that, to dive deeper into God's truth. Because you've heard me say, and I believe it's true, you don't need a social media uh, understanding of the scripture. You don't need a meme understanding of the scripture. Those will lead you astray. You don't even need a devotional books level of understanding of the scripture that where, where a few verses are taken out of context, gives you some interpretation and then gives you a prayer to pray. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but you need a deep knowledge of the scripture. If you're going to remain faithful to God in Babylon and through Babylon. And so that's why we're going verse by verse and we're studying uh, the, the scripture and, and getting to know it in a deep way, because that's, what's going to help you be faithful in Babylon. <coughs> All right, let's go. Daniel chapter two, starting in verse one. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I've had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, long live the king. Some translations say, O king, live forever. And at least at this moment, uh, they're speaking truth because all people will live forever, the scripture teaches, in one of two places, either in the kingdom of God forever or in the kingdom of Satan in hell, separated from God forever. O king, live forever. Long live the king. Tell us the dream first, and then we will tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream first, and then we can tell you what it means. And the king replied, I know what you are doing. You're stalling for time because you know, I'm serious. When I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind, but tell me the dream. And then I'll know what, uh, then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. So God disturbs King Nebuchadnezzar with a dream. He is scared. He is terrified by what he has seen in his dreams. And what do scared, insecure bosses do? They become bad bosses and bad leaders. Nebuchadnezzar is asking an impossible tasks of those that 
work for him. And sadly for these magicians and enchanters, there is no HR to go and report him to. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar is king. He can have them executed uh, with one word that there's no one, there's no board of directors that he reports to. Uh, he is a king and his word is final. And so he makes this impossible request because he's got an impossible problem. He's got a God-sized problem, and Nebuchadnezzar knows he needs to hear from God. Or to him, in Babylon, as a polytheist, he would have said, I need to hear from the gods. I need a supernatural answer and response to what is plaguing me, to what is scaring me. I need the help of the gods. And so he's asking for this help, but he's setting up this test to make sure that he's getting revelation from God. He's not sure if he trusts these guys anymore. If they just tell him what he wants to hear, he wants to know, and this is what you should want to know too. I need to know the truth. I don't need people just to, just to tell me what I want to hear to make me feel comfortable. That's not going to help me. I want to know the truth. And so Nebuchadnezzar sets up this test. He sets up this impossible situation by which he hopes to hear from the gods. He wants to hear from God because he's got a God-sized problem. Let's keep reading. Verse 10, the astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream. And watch this. And they do not live here among people. Oh, really? Because the God of Israel, the God of Daniel, has always dwelled on earth among his people and always will. Through the temple, through the tabernacle that God gave to Israel, God said, I will dwell among you and I will be your God and you will be my people. I, I mean, God led his people with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of, pillar of fire by night. God was with his people. Daniel knew, I serve a God, I serve a God who is with me and who is with his people and who does dwell on earth. When Jesus came to earth, John 1 tells us that God became flesh and made his dwelling among us because of God's desire to be with his people, to be among his people. And so Jesus was called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, because that's the heart of God. The one true God wants to dwell among and be with his people. And so when Jesus left the earth, he told his followers, he said, hey, I'm going, but there's one coming after me, the Holy Spirit, who's going to live inside of you. And it's going to be my presence living in you. And so in the Holy Spirit, in the new covenant, you and I have the presence of God dwelling inside of us because God wants to be with his people. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of Daniel does dwell on earth among his people. But here's what the magicians, enchanters, and the wise men get right. They can't answer the king's question. They, they, they can't help him with his problem. And they said that there's no one on earth who can answer this question. You, you need the gods. You need a supernatural divine revelation. That's the only thing that's going to help you. And so here's what they got right. Here's what they got right here in this moment. The great existential questions of life 
and death continue to confound the worldly wise. Those who consider themselves to be educated cannot answer life's greatest questions. Without divine revelation from God, that's God revealing himself, that's God uh, speaking to us, without that revelation from God, there is only conjecture and subjective opinion. Worldly advice, we learn here in Daniel 2, is insufficient. It will not help us with impossible situations, with God-sized problems, with life's most important questions. And in fact, even when we hear from God, Paul tells us in Corinthians that we need the spirit of God to help us understand the word of God. And so even right now, as you hear from God's word, as you're reading it, as you hear it, as you're processing it, it's the Holy Spirit alone that will give you the ability to know, understand, interpret, and then to apply God's word. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. Paul says spiritual things are only understood through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so these magicians, these enchanters, these, these wise men, the most educated people in Babylon cannot help Nebuchadnezzar with his God-sized problem because they don't know and understand divine revelation. They can't. They don't have the spirit of God. But Nebuchadnezzar needs to hear from God. So we've got a big problem. Let's keep going. Verse 12. The king was furious when he heard this. And he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. Some translations say prudence and tact is how he handled the situation. You see, freaking out will never help you in an impossible situation nor will self-medication. Self-medication with drugs or alcohol will never help you in your impossible situation. Finding yourself, centering yourself, learning more about yourself, going on a quest to, to learn about who yourself is, all that, that's not gonna help you in your impossible situation. No, it says Daniel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, handled the situation with wisdom, prudence, discretion, tact is another word. And that's what we need the Spirit of God to help us do. We need the Spirit of God to give us wisdom in our impossible situations. Verse 15, he asked Arioch, why is the king issued such a harsh decree? And so Arioch told him all that had happened. And Daniel went at once to see the king, watch this, and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. The other magicians and enchanters had already asked for more time and they were denied. But once again, here in Daniel chapter two, we see the spirit of God giving Daniel favor that the other people don't have. And that's what it's going to take if you're going to live in Babylon, but not be of Babylon. If you're going to make it through Babylon, if you're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need the spirit of God, like we said last week, to give you strength and favor and resolve. And once again, the spirit of God is giving Daniel favor with the king to go even to the king, period. And then secondly, to ask for more time. Verse 17, then Daniel went home and told his friends. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened? He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. Daniel calls his crew together to pray. 
He's faced with an impossible situation and, and what does he do then freak out? He doesn't self-medicate. He doesn't go on a journey to find himself, to center himself. No, he prays. He gets his crew together to pray. And we see this beautiful picture of these four young men, most likely teenagers in high school, getting together to pray and cry out to God in the middle of their impossible situation. This is a life and death crisis. And these teenagers are gathering together, pleading with God to have mercy on them and to give them wisdom and understanding. You see, you need your crew before your crisis. You need your crew before your crisis. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes something happens in our life. We're faced with an impossible situation and we go scrambling, trying to find our way back to God or find our way back to church or find our crew that can gather around us to pray for us and encourage us and be there for us. And oftentimes it's too late because you're already in the impossible situation. You need your crew before your crisis. If you're not in crisis right now, Man, I've got great news for you. Now is the time to seek God. Now is the time to pray. Now is the time to study God's word. Now is the time to get a crew around you to do the Christian life with. And we do that in city groups. And if you're not in one, I wanna challenge you to get in one. You can sign up for one on our app. It's an awkward, I'll just be honest, it's an awkward first step of faith. If you've ever joined a group with people you don't know, you know, how that, you know what that's like. It's an awkward first step of faith, but God will honor that step of faith. And over time, he will give you a crew to go through your crisis with. Because make no mistake, your crisis is coming. Your impossible situation is coming. And you need a crew to go through your crisis with. Let's keep reading. Verse 19, that night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. And he said, praise the name of the God, praise the name of God forever and ever. For he has all wisdom and power. Watch this. Verse 21. He controls the course of world events. I don't know about you, but I would circle all those, underline that, highlight that in your app. What a, he alone, God controls the course of of world events. Next verse, he removes kings and he sets up other kings. So when there's a change in leadership, who's responsible? When events are happening in the world and we have no idea what's going on and it seems like all hell is breaking loose and there's chaos happening all around, who is in control of the world events? It's God. God is in control of all world events. God sets up kings and he removes kings at his pleasure. And you will see more about why that is here in just a little bit. But God is always in control. He is always moving and working in impossible situations. And even through evil leaders and nations and people. That's how in control and amazing our God is, is that he turns even the evil things and uses them for your good and for his glory. So God is in control of world events. He removes kings, he sets up other kings, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and he knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you God of my ancestors. Some translations say God of my fathers. 
What David is acknowledging here is that his faith has been passed down to him from his father. Daniel has a strong faith and confidence in God. Daniel has got a crew around him that he is following God with, that he is living in Babylon with. Daniel is trusting God in an impossible situation. He's not caving in or giving in to the pressures of his culture in Babylon. Why? Because Daniel says, I have been passed down this faith from my father and his father passed it down to his father and his father passed it down to his father. Daniel's saying, my father walked with God. My father knew God. Parents, dads, you don't need to be here for the sake of your kids. You need to be here for you. And dads, let me just say to you, the chances that your kids will continue to walk with Jesus all of their lives has a lot to do with what is happening in your life. It has a lot to do with your relationship with God, your faith in God. Daniel said, I'm following, I'm trusting, and I'm worshiping, I'm praying to the God of my father and his father and his father. This is the God of my ancestors. It's been passed down to me. I didn't get here by chance. I didn't get here on my own. My dad led me to this place. He taught me. He showed me the way. And Daniel stands firm in Babylon because of the God of his fathers. For you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Then Daniel went in to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men in Babylon. And Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. So what is God doing in and through the impossible? Well, number one, God is using the impossible to reveal our good. God will always use your impossible situation to reveal your good. And that's what God is doing here in the first part of Daniel chapter two. He's revealing Nebuchadnezzar's good, Babylon's good, Daniel's good. He's revealing our good through this impossible situation. Jeremiah chapter 29 God, through the prophet Jeremiah, told the captives in Judah, in Babylon, the captives of Judah in Babylon, he said this in Jeremiah chapter 29, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. God says, work for and pray for the peace and prosperity of the city. That, that's, this is the, the nation of Babylon and its leaders where I've sent you into exile. In other words, I care about the good of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. I care about the good of your enemies. And so work towards it and pray for it because its welfare, their welfare will determine your welfare. And look in verse 24, Daniel cries out to Arioch, don't kill the wise men. These are his enemies. These are his captors. And he is crying out, don't kill them. He cares about them. He cares about their good. 
He cares about Nebuchadnezzar's good because he knows that God cares about their good and that God has told them while they are in exile to pray for and to work for the peace and prosperity of the city, the nation, and its leaders, even though they are your enemies. God says, I I care about them and I'm orchestrating all of this. I'm orchestrating this impossible situation for their ultimate good. So what is that good? Well, the good you're going to find out in this chapter is God himself. Their good is God himself. Your good is God himself. It's not an outcome. It's not a situation. It's God himself. That's your good. That was their good. And that's what God is orchestrating here. And that's what God is trying to show them. I am your ultimate good. You will only find the satisfaction, the peace, the fulfillment, the answers to life that you are looking for in me. I am your good. And God is orchestrating and using this impossible situation to show them their ultimate good, that he alone is the one true God and that he alone is worthy of their worship, their faith and their trust, that he alone will satisfy them. Let's keep reading. Daniel chapter two, verse 25. Ariok quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. And the king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now, I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. Daniel says, <laughs> Daniel says, your magicians, your enchanters, your educated, wise people, your religious beliefs are of no value, no worth, and cannot help you right now, Nebuchadnezzar. But there is a God in heaven. This isn't a man-made God like you're a God. This isn't a deified man like many of the cultures of the day believed in. There's a God in heaven and he alone is God. I mean, Daniel in a respectful manner is actually telling the king that the paganism of Babylon and all pagan religions were absolutely worthless. And that it was only Yahweh, the God of Israel that exists and is actually able to help them. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, Daniel, you're not supposed to say things like that to a king who can kill you and chop your head off. Like you're not supposed to challenge the religious beliefs of someone so powerful. You're not not supposed to do that, Daniel. Don't, Don't you know that with a snap of a finger, with one word, he could have you killed? But you see, here's the thing. Daniel isn't impressed with the throne and power of Nebuchadnezzar because he's been with God. He's been to the throne of the King of Kings. He knows he's a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so he isn't impressed by lesser kings and lesser kingdoms. When you've been in the presence of God, when you know God, 
When you've been to the throne room of God in prayer and you cry out to God and God is speaking to you. And when you read God's supernatural word and you, and you hear from God, when this is your life, you just aren't impressed by or fearful of lesser kings and kingdoms. And not only that, you don't, aren't as tempted to find your identity in those lesser kings and kings. You're not as tempted to trust in lesser kings and kings. You're not as tempted to put your faith in lesser kings and kingdoms. When you've experienced God, when you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you're, you're just not impressed by it. You're not fearful of lesser kings and kingdoms. Let's keep reading. Verse 29, you better buckle up. <laughs> We're about to get into this vision and it is detailed. So make sure you've got your Bible open, your Bible app, our app, reading along with us uh, because you could get lost real quick. So I'm just telling you, I'm just warning you right now, uh, buckle up. We're about to go 90 miles an hour at about, oh, 3000 years of history. Okay. So here we go. Verse 29, while your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but it's because God wants you to understand what's in your heart. There it is again. God cares about Nebuchadnezzar's good. He's orchestrating this entire situation for Nebuchadnezzar's good. He wants him to understand what's going on. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And then the wind blew them away without a trace, like a chaff on a threshing floor. But that rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain and covered the whole earth. That was the dream. Now we will tell what the king, or now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you, are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you ruler over all the inhabited world. Uh, Daniel's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you may be king and have a lot of power, uh, but it's God in heaven who's given you this position and who has given you this power. So, so you may be king, but Nebuchadnezzar, you, you got to understand, there's a king of kings. And he rules over you, and he is the one who's given you your power. You will rule over all the inhabited world and has put the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. Verse 39. But after your kingdom comes to an end, so he's telling this king, your, your kingdom's going to come, come to an end uh, because it's God, the king of kings, who sets up kings and uh, brings down kings. So your kingdom is coming to an end. Another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. 
That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of the iron, but while some parts of it will be strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reign of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed the pieces, the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and its meaning is certain. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this statue and the statue goes from gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. In other words, the the materials that are being used in this statue are successively getting less and less valuable. Daniel said, the kingdom that's going to conquer yours, Nebuchadnezzar, is inferior. It's not as worthy. It's not as valuable. So in other words, here's what's happening. While most of the people on earth at any given time think society is actually progressing and advancing towards some sort of utopia that we could set up some sort of government or nation or country that would be a utopia that we could find the perfect form of, of, of government and leadership that would lead us to utopia. God looks down and says, no, 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 actually you, you think you're getting better. You think you're progressing, but in my eyes, you're getting much worse. You're not progressing. You're, you're regressing. And sure, there's a lot of victories we've had along the way, even in the way Christians respond to and believe about certain things. But overall, God says, we're, we're not moving towards a utopia. We're, we're, we're moving further and further away from him, more and more into rebellion against God. So let's look at this statue. I've got this graphic here to, to help you uh, kind of break this down, to know what this means. Uh, it's in the app too. If you scroll down, it's there. You can kind of read along with me. But, but Daniel says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, you saw a head of gold and, the, and that, gold is you, that, that head of gold is you. We, we know that for sure. And so this, this head represents Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian empire. Now, where we're about to go, these things are what we would call open-handed issues. This is what uh, I believe these things represent. Uh, some people disagree. I'm just telling you what most scholars, Old Testament, New Testament scholars and commentators that I follow believe these things represent. Some of it we're very sure about, some things we're not as sure about it, but I'm telling you what I believe and what my interpretation is based on uh, the, the scholars and the classes and all those things that, that, that I've had. So, so next, after the head of gold, you've got the chest and arms of silver, which represent the Medo-Persian Empire, two powerful nations that came together as one. And one of the, the most notable kings in the Persian empire was Cyrus the Great, which we'll learn more about here in the book of Daniel. Cyrus is the one who lets uh, Israel and Judah go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, rebuild the, the, the temple. So, so we're going to learn more about Cyrus here soon. But that represents the Medo-Persian empire that, that took power after Babylon. 
Uh, next, you've got the belly and thighs of bronze. This represents the Greek empire, most notably Alexander the Great, who led the Greeks uh, in victory over the, the Persian empire. But this is the next world empire that, that comes along. Then next, you've got the legs of iron, which represents the Roman empire. And then going down into the feet, you've got the feet and toes of iron and clay that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And uh, we believe, I believe, this is a renewed Roman empire-like or esque kingdom empire that will come to power. It's yet to come. I believe Daniel is interpreting this dream and saying there's going to be a kingdom much like the Roman empire was that is going to come to power before Daniel says the rock comes. There will be this renewed Roman empire-esque type kingdom come to power. And during the reign of that empire will come the rock that comes a mountain, which represents Jesus. It's not Dwayne the Rock Johnson. He's not the one that dashes the statue to pieces. Uh, the rock is a supernatural rock. Daniel says not cut by human hands. It's a supernatural rock that comes and dashes this statue, the nations and empires of the earth to pieces. And this rock represents Jesus. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a little bit of time. We're going to talk a little bit more about the rock that becomes a mountain and what this is and what this looks like. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this renewed Roman empire that is still to come that will be in power when Jesus returns for his second coming. So first of all, let's talk about the rock. Two characteristics of this rock. First, it is spiritual in its conquering nature and unseen. Secondly, it is physical in its conquering nature and seen. It's both. Some Commentators, some scholars will say, no, it's one or the other, referring to either Christ's first coming or his second coming. I believe it's both. I believe there's elements of both. I don't think it's either or. I think it's a both and. I think this rock that becomes a mountain is conquering both in a spiritual nature and then yes, for sure, when Jesus returns in a physical nature. So let me tell you a little bit more about that. First of all, the spiritual nature of the conquering that happens in this unseen kingdom that becomes this mountain. Josephus was one of the most famous early ancient Jewish historians. And Josephus says that it was the book of Daniel that inspired a Jewish revolution after the time of Christ. That some oppressed Jews started thinking that they needed to help God bring down Rome based on this vision. That the rock was supposed to dash Rome to pieces but the rock kind of came and went and Rome's still here. And so some of the Jews start thinking, well, we better help God bring down the Roman empire. So they lead this revolt that is squashed. But what's interesting is that Jesus didn't, excuse me, Jesus didn't launch a revolt against Rome when he came the first time. That's not the way he interpreted Daniel, clearly. At least not in in this first coming of Christ, in the first appearance of the rock, he's not leading this physical scene revolt, dashing the Roman empire to pieces. Yet Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, I am king, and I have conquered the world. <laughs> oh, really? Because right after Jesus says this, He's arrested in a garden, he's beaten, he's crucified, and somehow that's his definition of conquering the world. 
That's not my definition. It wasn't his followers' definition of conquering the world. It definitely wasn't. They're disillusioned. They're scared. They don't know what's happened because the rock they thought was supposed to come and dash the Roman Empire to pieces didn't really do it. And so they're confused. What do you mean mean you're going to conquer the world? You, You haven't conquered the world. But here's what's interesting is it's at this moment where Jesus gets his crown, his robe, his title of king on the cross, But then the smashing rock of God's kingdom, or so we thought, was smashed on the cross by the kingdoms of this world. And the disciples, his followers, are confused. And many Jews didn't believe that Jesus was the rock, that he was the Messiah, because of this exact reason. They didn't follow him because he wasn't leading a revolt. Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. We're not, we're not here leading a revolt. And so maybe you can understand a little bit more about why the disciples were confused, often confused about who Jesus was and, and what he was doing. And so, so how do we reconcile this with this rock that's supposed to dash the, the nations to pieces and set up this kingdom that's never going to end? Well, Paul in Colossians chapter two explains it for us. And he says this, That when Jesus died on that cross, the record of your sin was nailed to the cross, disarming all the rulers and authorities, and Jesus triumphed over them on the cross. So God conquers human evil, he conquers sin, and he conquers death itself through the cross and his resurrection. So so that's what I mean about this rock that becomes a mountain being spiritual in its conquering nature and unseen. God was conquering sin and death through his son's death and resurrection. And in doing so, Paul says he disarmed all the rulers and authority. He triumphed over them through his death on the cross. But secondly, this rock is physical in its conquering nature. And it's seen. And this is referring to Christ's second coming when he will set up his earthly kingdom that's called the millennium, where he will reign on earth for a thousand years. And so let's talk about this a little bit more. The last part of the statue that is destroyed by the rock represents an earthly empire existing immediately prior to Christ's return. That's the feet of iron and clay, the toes and the feet. Since the feet have 10 toes, of iron and clay emanating from the iron legs that symbolize the old Roman empire, many scholars believe there's a connection between this nation, this kingdom that will come to power and the old Roman empire. This future world empire will be connected to ancient Rome in that it may involve peoples or nations that made up the old Roman empire. This renewed Roman empire will be some sort of federation of nations that the toes of clay and iron represent. Some of them will be strong, represented by the iron. Some of them will be weak, represented by the clay. These nations will not remain united though. They will maintain separate cultures and their own national identities as was the case in the old Roman empire, which is what brought it down. This final empire, excuse me, this final empire will consist of 10 kingdoms or nations ruling jointly at the time of Christ's return when the rock comes and dashes them to pieces and becomes a mountain. 
John speaks of this 10 kingdom confederacy in Revelation chapter 13 and in Revelation chapter 17. When he says these 10 nations will rule the earth and will hand their power over to a beast. It's the Antichrist who will come to power before the return of Christ. But then at this time, Daniel says the rock will supernaturally come from heaven and defeat these nations, will defeat the beast and will become a mountain, a kingdom that rules forever. And so when Jesus returns at his second coming, he will set up a physical, supernatural, overwhelmingly divine, victorious, forever kind of kingdom here on earth, fulfilling the covenant that God made to David, that I will put a king sitting on your throne and he will rule forever. God always comes through on his promise. He will never let us down. So what is God doing in and through the impossible? Second thing I want you to see, God is using the impossible to reveal his gospel. He is always moving and working and orchestrating things in your impossible situation to reveal the gospel, the coming of his son and the return of his son. God can get to anyone to share the truth of his gospel, much like this dream shows us. He can get to anyone. God will even use a donkey to speak to people. He's doing it right now, right in front of you. Uh, God will do anything. He will use any means necessary to communicate his gospel. It's what God always does. I told you before, this book is about not only what has happened, but what always happens. God is always supernaturally drawing people to himself. Even people like Nebuchadnezzar, even nations like Babylon. God is still doing this today, using dreams to reveal himself to people. In Islamic countries that are closed to the gospel, missionaries will show up and they will find that people already know who Jesus is, that they already know some of the word of God. They've already formed churches and they will ask them, how do you know all this stuff? What missionary came and told you? And they will find out that no missionary has told them that they by dreams have seen Jesus and Jesus has taught them the word of God and Jesus has formed them into churches. <laughs> I mean, did you just hear that? This is what God is always doing. These are the links that God will go to to draw people to himself. So when someone challenges you and says, hey, that God's not worthy to be followed or to worship. Look at all the crazy things it looks like he does in the Old Testament. All the anger, all the wrath. Well, you can also note and say, look at the links God is going to to reveal himself to Nebuchadnezzar, to reveal himself to Babylon, to draw people to himself. Look at the patience he had with his own people for 500 years as they lived in rebellion and God continued to call them to himself and they continued to rebel against him before he poured out his anger, his wrath on his people and sent them into captivity in Babylon. I mean, the grace and mercy of God and the links that God is going to to reveal himself to his people and to his creation are 
astounding. God uses impossible situations to reveal his gospel. And this was always his purpose in choosing and blessing Israel was that they would be a blessing and light to the nations and that all peoples on the face of the planet, Genesis chapter 12, God's covenant to Abraham would be blessed through them with the knowledge of the one true God. Scripture tells us that it was in the fullness of time that God sent his son to earth. The fullness of time, almost like God was in control of world events. And that in the fullness of time, God brought his son to earth. What, the fullness of time, what, what is that supposed to mean? Well, it was the Roman empire that was in power when Jesus came the first time. And the Romans through Pax Romana had built an incredible highway system, had through their empire, brought about one common language, the Greek language. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, they arrest him, they crucify him. He's resurrected from the grave. He sends out his followers. And what roads and highways do his followers, the disciples, go out preaching the great news of the gospel? It's the Roman highways. What language do his apostles go out preaching the great news of the gospel in? The Greek language. What Language was our New Testament written in the Greek language. God used the Roman Empire for our good and for his gospel because God is in control of world events. And in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus, to die at the hands of the Romans because they had set up a highway system and a common language that would be most useful for the spread of the gospel. And all of this is gonna happen again. A Rome-like-esque kingdom is going to come to power. Jesus is going to return and dash this kingdom and these nations to pieces. And Jesus said about this rock that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And Jesus said, I'm the stone that the builders rejected. I am that stone. So you can be crushed by the stone or you could submit to the stone. And that's true for every last one of us. It's not just for the nations that will be around when Jesus returns. It's true for every last one of us. You can be crushed by the stone or you can submit to the stone. And I would challenge you today to submit to the stone. Give your life to Jesus, that you might be saved of your sin, made right with God, and you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven because you submit your life to the stone. Let's finish. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshiped him and commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burnt sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, truly, your God is the greatest of all gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. And then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. So what is God doing in and through impossible situations? Last thing, God is using the impossible to reveal his glory. God is using and always uses the impossible to reveal his glory, that he alone is sovereign and knows all things, that he alone 
or is in control of all things, that he alone is omniscient and knows all things, that he alone is omnipotent and can do all things. In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel, can you tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel says, I can't. But there is a God in heaven. He gives credit where credit is due. And he points Nebuchadnezzar to the one true God, realizing his opportunity as a missionary in the middle of his impossible situation, he points Nebuchadnezzar to the one true God. And Nebuchadnezzar, astounded by Daniel's God, says that Daniel's God is the God of gods. And he acknowledges that Daniel's God is supreme. However, Nebuchadnezzar is not converted, if you will, to the Jewish faith as he would continue to worship many other gods. He just put Jesus kind of up on the shelf with every other God that he worshiped. You see, he acknowledged something mentally, but there wasn't a heart change. There wasn't a life change. There wasn't an internal repentance in the life of Nebuchadnezzar to turn away from his sin and to begin to follow Daniel's God. He acknowledged something mentally, but nothing happened in his heart. Jesus said that one day there will be many people that stand before him and they will say, I, I, I know who you are and I've done all these things. I've read all the, uh, the, the, the words in, the, in your word. I, I've prayed all the prayers. I've sang all the songs. I've done all the good, these good things, Father. And Jesus said, I will tell those people, depart from me. I never knew you. You didn't have a relationship with me. You acknowledged some things mentally. You went through the motions. You went through some of the routines, but you didn't meet me. You didn't know me. You don't have a relationship with me. And my fear is, is that some of us today are maybe watching online. We've grown up going to church. We, we've read all the Bible stories, sang the songs, prayed the prayers. We've gone through the motions. We've gone through all the routines, but we don't know God. We know about him. We've acknowledged him, but we don't know him. You've never given your life to Jesus. Today is your day. Now is your time to give your life to Jesus. Submit to the stone. And when you do, your sin will be forgiven. You'll be made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. And if that's you, jump on our app, fill out our connect form, and let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. Here's our big idea. God is the author of and provider in the impossible. God is always in control of all things. And so he's the author of and the provider in your impossible situation. Daniel and his friends serve as a model for how to live in a foreign, pagan, Babylonian culture. We live by faith in the one true God. We, we don't place our faith in the kingdoms of this world because there's only one eternal kingdom that's worthy of our trust, identity, allegiance, and worship. I mean, you've got the most powerful man in the world right now is on the ground bowing before an exiled Jew. That's how powerful this man really is. It's not real powerful. And so I told you last week, this book will continue to challenge us not to put our faith in governments, leaders, and nations. They are not worthy of our trust. 
They're not worthy of even finding identity with. They're not even really worthy a whole lot of pride. As citizens of the king, citizens of the kingdom of God, our allegiance is to him, is to the king of kings. So our faith isn't in nations and kingdoms. We also don't put our faith in signs and wonders. Our faith's in God. When you follow God, signs and wonders tend to follow you. But our faith is not in a miracle or when it happens. Our faith is in God, the doer of miracles. And so our faith, our trust is in God. Faith is knowing that God uses the impossible for our good, his gospel and his glory. That's faith. It's believing and trusting that God uses the impossible for our good, his gospel and his glory. This last part of Daniel tells us that Daniel became this powerful person in the nation of Babylon. He came, became the, the chief Bible teacher. He was in charge of all the wise men. And so we learn that, that Daniel would begin to teach the wise men, magicians, enchanters, the word of God. He would teach them about the one true God. And, and no doubt those wise men would teach their kids, who would teach their kids, who would teach their kids. And hundreds of years later, there's some wise men that show up at the door of Mary and Joseph. A couple years after Jesus is born, word has gotten out that all these prophecies have been fulfilled. And there's some Bible students that come from the east, it's the land of Shinar, where Babylon was. And they show up to the door of Mary and Joseph and they bring gifts fit for a king, a priest, a prophet, And we're not sure, but most scholars and historians believe that these were descendants of the Babylonian Magi, the magicians. So God used Babylon. He used this entire possible situation for our good, for his gospel and for his glory. And so in spite of present appearances and current circumstances, you can know that God is always in control. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your supernatural word. God, that challenges us, that encourages us, that fills us with faith. God, to know and believe and trust that you are using impossible situations for our good, your gospel, and your glory. And so God, I pray that right now you'd fill our hearts with faith and trust in the one true God. God, reveal yourself to us. It's in your name we pray.